Welcome to the Player Engage podcast, where we dive into the biggest challenges, technologies, trends, and best practices for creating unforgettable player experiences. Player Engage is brought to you as a collaboration between Keyword Studios and HelpShift. Here is your host, Greg Posner. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Player Engage podcast. Today, we're going to dive into the career journey of Andres Tayos, co-founder and CEO of Everguild. From his early day at McKinsey & Company to co-founding Mint Sprint and eventually Everguild, Andres shares valuable insights and experiences gained along the way. Discover how he navigated development and publishing of acclaimed titles like Dragon Lords and The Horse Heresy Legions, and how his strategic vision and passion for customer experience has driven Everguild's success. Explore the unique challenges and opportunities of creating an immersive experience within the Warhammer universe. Andres, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited about our conversation. Anything I have left out that you'd like to touch on about yourself? No, that's a great intro. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I think creating a player experience around a really well-known IP like Warhammer is going to be a very interesting conversation. But before we even get there, my favorite question to ask is, uh, are you a gamer? And if so, what games are you playing these days? Yes, I think I, I'm pretty much a gamer. Although I must say I don't play as much since I started working uh, in the industry because now it's very hard to play a game without at the same time be like taking notes of how they've like solved issues or how they've handled like the UI or the monetization or like <laughs> anything and everything. So I would say, yeah, I don't play as much as I used to, but but yeah. That seems common no matter what industry you're in, right? Yeah, I've met some people in film and they they just go to movies now and critique it. It's like ripping your hair out trying to go to watch a movie with them. And we understand maybe Transformers isn't accurate, but whatever. Um, (laughs) Before we get really into our conversation, can you kind of give us uh, the background of what Everguild is? Kind of talk about the games, talk about. Absolutely. So Everguild is the studio that, uh, well, my sister Isabel and myself uh, founded together about eight years ago now. We both had some experience uh, by creating an earlier uh, video games studio called Mint Sprint, uh, but that one didn't, didn't work out that well. So we tried again. We managed to get some angel funding. We did the first card game. Uh, so just to, to set up, like the, this was the time when Hearthstone had just come out of uh, Vita. And it was not available on mobile yet, but it was obviously a massive success on PC and iPad. And we figured out we like we loved that uh, genre, that type of game. We we figured out we'll try to do like a, our own version of a car game, taking many of the learnings from Hearthstone, but at the same time making it way more optimized for mobile devices. And so that's how our first game came along, called Dragon Lords, that helped us secure a licensing agreement with Games Workshop to do a game based on the Horus Heresy, which is an IP, like part of the Warhammer 40,000 universe. And that's the Legions that came out about five years ago. It's been uh, quite successful, has been growing steadily since it, its release. And, and now we've managed to get another licensing agreement, again, with Games Workshop, this time for the main Warhammer 40,000 IP. Uh, it's a much bigger game. It's going to be cross-platform, but uh, PC first this time. And yeah, we have a, a bigger team and a bigger budget this time to and a much more ambitious game. So that one is uh, coming out this year. It's actually in closed alpha already. So people are already playing um, like an early version of it. And, and we are very uh, optimistic and, and very, um, well, I'm taking a whole bunch of notes here because you're you're saying some interesting things that I want to delve into, and it's fascinating. Um, 
the one you just mentioned, I just want to ask first, and it makes no sense in the order of questions, is you're, you're, it's great that you got the bigger IP to, to Warhammer exactly, right? But why PC first? It seems like an interesting choice with the big mobile trend going on. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, well, with uh, Horus Heresy Legions already, we started out on mobile, but uh, after a year or so, we released a, a PC version on, on Steam as well, and we put a lot of effort into making it feel as native as possible, so rather than just a port uh, from mobile, right? But there was always this sense that I think there's there's two things. One is the kind of stamp of like the, the credibility and the stamp of quality that you get from uh, like going all out on PC uh, with a game that can stand its own against like obviously the big uh, well-known games like Hearthstone or Lens of Runeterra or, or even Magic the Gathering. So we are trying to convey this idea that, hey, the, the quality that we're putting into the game, the, the finished the production values are up there with the best. And second, uh, one thing which is very important nowadays is uh, if we want to have content creators cover the game, like on, on Twitch and YouTube, making like putting out videos or, or streaming the game, um, it's way easier to convince them to try the game on PC than it is on mobile. Um, many content creators are nowadays already like covering mobile games, but it's still, I think, just a fraction uh, of all the, the content creators out there. That's fascinating. And I completely see where you're coming from, right? I mean, when you think AAA games, you think you think PC, you think, you think console, right? But we're in this day where a lot of indie gaming companies that are creating mobile-first titles are being acquired by these AAA titles because AAA titles are having trouble creating these mobile games so it's like this you want a stamp of quality you want to build pc but what the money and the player base is all on the mobile side so it's an interesting kind of almost a b test on where you're seeing more users yeah i mean in our case it's interesting because it depends a lot on the market i think there are some countries where uh pc is is very big uh even if it's not as big as uh mobile but certainly for this genre and for like relatively like hardcore game rather than the more casual genres. Um, I think that like PC is, is large enough. So we are not doing this just because like just to, as, a, as a PR stunt. We actually think that, uh, that the PC um, will be a very important platform for Warforge. But at the same time, we want like we know there's uh, like a lot of players who are for, very much into card games and into Warhammer who don't play on PC, they just play on mobile and, and we want to make the game available to those as well. And we are fortunate that nowadays the high quality mobiles are, are like super powerful as well and they can run like a very high quality games um, and play smoothly. Yeah, and it's becoming more and more affordable. When it comes to your, I want to talk about your journey as an entrepreneur because it's interesting, right? Because you, you did start with Mint Sprint, which you said didn't quite work out. What, what, I guess when you look back at that experience, I'm sure there's many people that, that learn, right? Obviously. So what did you learn from Mint Sprint that when you started Evergild, you said, Hey, we got to do this differently this time, or I guess lessons learned. Yeah. So, well, Mint Sprint, uh, it was uh, set up by three of us. So it was Isabel, my sister, uh, myself, and there was also Joe Waller, um, a good friend who was more like a technical person. He had actually. Uh, worked in, in PC gaming before at Bullfrog. So he had a, a lot of industry experience and then he had become a pretty senior person at another company. And, uh, and he decided he also wanted like to set up a, a game studio. 
And so we partner. And I think the biggest mistake we made was to be too innovative. <laughs> I think this is a, a lesson. It's, it's often taught like uh, there, like this suggestion to people starting out with a new game, saying, "Hey, um, you have to be very innovative. You have to be do something that uh, that no other game has done before." And I think when you are starting out with your first game as a studio with a pretty small team like we were at the time, obviously you have to do something different and something unique. But if you are like trying to innovate in too many um, dimensions and in too many axes, then it just becomes unmanageable. So in our case, the game we were trying to make was very innovative uh, at a technological level. So it was like streaming, it was running on the server and it was streaming the game to mobile devices um, that had never actually been done on, on iOS up to that point. We were innovating on the gameplay. We were innovating on the monetization. We were <laughs> innovating on too many fronts and it just became like too much to handle. We, we would have needed a much bigger team, uh, much more time uh, than we had to, to really like experiment uh, and, and do A-B tests and do focus groups and really learn and to get like all these things to a place where it really worked. Are there any things that you took from those learnings that you did implement in Everguild? Maybe it's all of it, right? But are there like key things that you remember tra transitioning, for lack of better words? Well, yeah, I guess like one of those was precisely like a plan, like trying not to innovate too much, and instead say, okay, let's take something that works, that uh, that we like, that we think uh, we want to, to keep, but let's change something to, to to target a niche or to uh, offer something which others don't offer. So in this case, for example, it was um, taking well, a lot of the ideas on gameplay and monetization from Hearthstone, but making it really optimized for mobile. So we changed the game mechanics, we changed the UI, we changed a lot of things in terms of like um, the game, but with a very clear starting point and a very clear focus of what we were trying to achieve, how we wanted to be better than Hearthstone. Obviously, we couldn't compete on production values or we couldn't compete on having like established fan base for the AP, but we could compete, for example, on having a way smaller build size for mobile, which is obviously quite important for many players. We could compete on having like much better performance in lowest spec devices. Um, we could compete on having a UI that, that was actually designed for mobile, for a more like um, landscape, a more uh, elongated screen versus the PC where you have more space. So we that we we approach it in that way. We say, okay, let's let's try to innovate in one thing <laughs> rather than in everything. It's interesting, and I'm just trying to think of kind of the experience that you're talking about. And I remember if I look back at my past, when I used to go to camp, we used to play Magic the Gathering. That was the thing that we used to just kind of love sitting around at the tables and playing Magic. And at that point, I, after that, I stopped playing card games until a few years ago, I started playing Gwent and now Marvel Snap and all these different experiences are coming up. When, when you're building the new the new game, right, and you're looking at it compared to, to the previous games, right, like is mobile a shorter time span? When you create... When you create Horus Heresy, right, and you say, hey, the average game span because it's users on mobile is probably going to be five minutes compared to the new IP coming out on PC. Maybe we can make that 15 minutes. Is that something that is real or am I making that up in my mind? No, that's absolutely real. And that was, for example, like one of the things that we changed clearly compared to Hearthstone. So in Hearthstone at the time, the matches could very easily go into the 15 or 20 minutes. And we were very clear that was not fine for mobile and so we made sure our like matches in legions were 
five to six minutes long on average. And, and it's also important. It's interesting because it's both the, it's the predictability of it that matters. So it's not just the average, but it's also what's the maximum time that the match could go on. So if you, even if the average is just five minutes, if you know that maybe there's some deck out there that you can get paired against that it plays very slowly and then your match could go into 15 minutes, maybe you will not start the match because you don't want to run the risk of having to like abandon midway just because you run out of time. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a very important um, thing to consider on mobile, um, like offering and, that said, I think some games manage to handle this very nicely. If you want to have gameplay that requires more than, uh, say, five minutes, sometimes there's a trick of just having something meaningful you can do in the game, which will take less than five minutes. So that maybe you don't come in and play like a full raid with your friends and because that's going to take, I don't know, half an hour. But if you have something that you can come in and do, that's something that mobile games, um, some mobile games have done really well so i mean clash of clans you can come in and just like collect your resources and maybe you don't have time to be like playing battles but there's an incentive for you to come back to the game when you have a minute or two yeah it's interesting i'm trying to think some of the other games i've played where they've done that they've started off with this small premise and then just added and then it almost feels like it's too much there's certain games i just stopped playing because they've added so many different mechanics to it where it was this easy game i could pick up and i could start doing it all of a sudden it's like homework every day i had to go and i had to do like 15 different tasks and i think there's almost this sprawl of too much of that i like your what you're going it's almost like an escape point for certain periods of time right like five minutes almost like a checkpoint save this come back later and finish it but some of them i think just I don't know, maybe I'm just talking and thinking out loud, like you almost create another game with these mechanics because you've turned a match three game into a whole nother monster. Well, I think that's uh, sort of inevitable. I mean, um, one one trend that I see happening certainly with like free-to-play games, whether it's mobile or PC, I don't think in this sense it makes a massive difference. It's, it's really hard nowadays to get players um, into your game. There's, there's just too many games out there. And so... It's very important, like once a player comes in and they like the game and they, they enjoy playing it, just to make sure that you can like keep these players like coming back and playing the game for a long time. Very often, like you need a lot of depth in the game for that to happen. So if you very quickly just like understand everything and then after a month, two months, however long, uh, well, you've kind of seen everything there is to the game, right? So having depth, in one way or another, so that even after months of playing the game, you're still like enjoying it because you're discovering new ways to play. Obviously, releasing content regularly helps a lot because, like for example, in our uh, card games, uh, we make regular expansions while having new armies and new cards to play with. Um, also, it's a, it's a great way to keep players coming back to see what's new and, and enjoying it again. But I think there's, there's this element of saying, hey, once you have players that enjoy your game, there's so much focus on how do I keep these players engaged and enjoying the game and coming back for more. Yeah, it sounds like what you're kind of talking through just makes it sound like different seasons to me, right? We see seasons in games now, right? And I think with a card game, uh, it's pivotal, right? Because you update cards, you create new cards, there's new actions that are taken. So 
I'm curious about the different types of metrics that you measure. We kind of talked about screen time. I'm not sure if you truly measure how long someone's in a game or how long a match takes. I'm sure it's all common metrics that exist, but I'm also thinking out loud, right? You, you can nerf cards, you can buff cards based on actions you're seeing. Are these things that you measure and what types of tools do you have that help you understand what's happening? Because it seems like you get quite complex. Yes. Well, so I think it's always a mix of the qualitative uh, feedback that we get through the different channels where we can see what players are saying, whether it's on the Discord channel or like the feedback that they sometimes like send us directly through the support channels. Um, or, or what we see, like, for example, when content creators are covering the game. So we see the, the stuff they are saying about the game, if they are enjoying it or which parts they are not enjoying, the comments from their viewers. So we try to get all this qualitative feedback. And then we try to compare that against the quantitative feedback. So we obviously look at the analytics and we say, okay, like how many players are coming back? That's like the most important metric. How much uh, are they playing and which, which uh, game modes they are playing? Because we have multiple different game modes. Some of them are against the AI, so like PVE uh, modes and, and others are PVP. So we are trying to keep our, and it's, even though there's a lot of data and KPIs in there, ultimately it's uh, you also need this intuition, and that's where the qualitative data comes in. I'm saying like, what's what's going on here? It's also because the the um, the numbers will sometimes lag the problem. So if you, for example, it's happened before, we release a new army and it has some mechanic that players are not enjoying, they are not liking it, and they are complaining about it. It doesn't necessarily get reflected in the figures straight away because like hey if someone is enjoying the game suddenly something he doesn't like doesn't mean he'll leave immediately but if you don't address that complaint or that issue or that mechanic that players are not enjoying then probably like a few weeks down the line you will lose that player and by then it may be too late to do anything about it so it's it's really a mix of the two things and ultimately also you know, a sort of intuition, I guess, of saying, okay, it's like, because ultimately what we do is, uh, to a large extent, is just managing players' frustration in a sense, <laughs> right? Like th th there's a certain level of frustration which is desirable. If everything is too easy, people get like the, everything too fast, they, they understand all the mechanics immediately, they, like then there's no challenge, there's no fun. But if there's too much frustration, <laughs> It's it's a bit of a problem, right? So it's it's there's there's an element I think of subjective judgment and saying, hey, are we in the right spot, or or yeah. how do we have a problem that we have to address? It's funny we we get asked that a lot, right? And a lot of times we collect a lot of data and we have a lot of information and people want more and more and like it's one thing to have data, but you have to make insights and, and understand what this is, right? Like it, it doesn't doesn't really help it and i always like to tell people and everyone blows me off but like you have to trust your gut sometimes and i think that's kind of where you're going like trust your intuition trust your gut like this something seems off with this and i can't quite measure it i can't quite tell what's up i think what's important to you said is you mentioned you listen to your feedback on discord i saw you also have a very active subreddit as well right yeah. so i want to continue on that conversation but my question is how, how are you managing this feedback from all these different noisy channels right i, I imagine there's like a sense of fear of oh my god what's going to happen on reddit or discord today it's just non-stop yeah 
I mean, for the most part, I wouldn't say there's fear necessarily. Um, I mean, we've had some episodes sometimes when we've done something that a lot of players really didn't like. And then we've had some backlash. And then it's like, well, the important thing there is to really recognize when something like that happens and react as quickly as possible. Because generally, the players who complain the most are also the most engaged. They are also the most... Uh, like. Um, they they really um, like in love with the game, or maybe they hate the game, but they're st- they, they still have like a, a very active involvement and engagement in the game and in the community. And so it's important to recognize when you've messed up and try to address it as quickly as possible. And it happens; it happens inevitably because we are releasing new content every Friday. Inevitably, we sometimes get things wrong, and so. It's, it's being able to tell that apart from the more usual situation where there's always some vocal people who complain about stuff, and it's fine. Sometimes they, they have a point, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the majority of players are feeling the same way or that there is a problem you have to address. So, you know, it's, uh, it does require a, a filter of saying when, when there is a fire versus, well, it's just a normal day to day. And I think the way we do that to some extent is uh, obviously a lot of our team members are also players themselves. And they are also somehow like with the, the, the finger on the pulse of uh, what people are saying on the different channels. And the advantage we have is that the different people in the team are engaged in different channels. So we know what's going on on Reddit. We know what's going on on Discord. We know what uh, it's going on like on the VK. Uh, we have like a big Russian-speaking community of players as well. We have pretty la- sizable number of um, uh, Chinese players as well who don't communicate with us as often. And it's harder to know what they are uh, talking about. But sometimes if something is really problematic, they will actually reach out as well. So sometimes what we do is simply triangulate. Like, okay, like some people are complaining a lot on on Discord about something, but no, it hasn't come up on Reddit or it hasn't come up in, in the Russian community or it hasn't come up with, it's like, well, maybe it's not so bad, right? It's not that we don't pay attention to it, but that here is where that intuition has to come in and say, okay, to what extent is this really a problem versus just a very loud minority? Yeah, it's one of those things where if there's smoke, there could be fire, but you don't want to overreact beforehand. And you mentioned kind of some people might hate the game. And I truly think if people hate the game, it means they actually love it and they're just frustrated, right? I mean, if someone takes the time to truly hate something, it means that they spent enough time in it to to get to know it and understanding that. And I guess my question is when you you have different users that are monitoring these different channels. Do you have like a central repository where you and the Everguild team just kind of sit and share this information? Like I heard this on VK, I heard this on Twitter, I heard this on, um, how, how do you? No, so we don't have such a structure process. It's something that happens a bit more naturally. So, I mean, we, we have an all hands every day where every time we release something new, we'll do, we'll spend like a few minutes saying, okay, like how, how has been the reaction to this? And uh, what have you guys seen in the different like uh, social media and the different channels? Have you seen many complaints? And then if we see that you know there's been like problems or complaints in in one place, and the other say, yeah, I've also seen that on this other place, then we'll obviously dig deeper into that, and then we'll look at the KPIs as well and say, okay, is this like, for example, if they are complaining about uh, like, a certain mechanic or a certain uh, deck or warlord being too like too strong or too toxic, well, 
like the first thing we do is go and check how often it has been played. Because if it it has suddenly become super popular and everybody's playing that uh, toxic deck, then we have a problem. Um, if it's still like a, something that's niche, that's a, kind of an edge case, then like, do we really need to address that? Or, or maybe we do, but not urgently. We just leave it for like the next balance, balance patch. So it's, you know, it's, it's, we do have a bit of a process, but it's nothing super structured, I guess. And, and with these channels, you, you have a, an IP that has a passionate fan base and they're to be very protective of their IP, wanting to make sure that no one's doing it wrong. Right. And yeah. how do you, how do I ask this question? Right. How do you manage the, the pressure of dealing with the Warhammer IP? Um, do the fans, come after you at all do they make recommendations do they sometimes yeah no absolutely <laughs> that's uh, i think it's um we've never had too much of a problem with that because we are fans ourselves most like uh, a majority of the team is it's very um like dedicated fan of warhammer and obviously we've been doing the uh, warhammer games for years now so that there's a bit of a self-selection uh when it comes to applying to work with us um of like obviously, we attract people who like the the Warhammer um, universe themselves. So that's not really too much of a problem. And I think what really matters is um, to show that appreciation for the IP yourself. So there are, and and that very often comes down to details which you didn't need to put effort into, but you've done nevertheless. Um, like one example, for example, like that we have in Legions is that. All the characters have these voiceovers, um, right? When they come into the match, they have like some lines you can use. And we created some Easter eggs, uh, which is that certain uh, matches, certain uh, pairs of characters, if they have an interesting backstory in the novels, then we created a special introductory line for those two characters that you can only hear when they, they happen to be a match against each other. So when you do things like that, when you go that extra mile in showing that, hey, like we care about this as well. We've read these novels. We like these characters. <laughs> and so we want to convey that. I think that gives you a lot of uh, credibility with the community. Doesn't keep them from telling you every time you get something wrong. And you know, we do our best not to like to get everything right. But sometimes we've made some mistakes, like maybe, I don't know, we've put the wrong helmet uh, with a certain armor. And, and, you know, we've missed that. And, and Games Workshop, who reviews all these, they've missed that too somehow. And then players tell us, like, within a minute of the new content coming up, we just fix it. I think we, this is, again, something that uh, is easy to say, but I think you have to, to prove it uh, every day that when you make some mistake, well, you just go in and fix it as quickly as possible. And that's what we try to do. It's fun. It sounds like it's like little Easter eggs hidden in the game when you find the right two people to match and you get that fun, fun thing. It's kind of, if, as a fan, you'd be like, oh, that's awesome. But kind of, that, that's fun. And when you talk about, you created uh, Dragon Lords, right? And then from that point, you said you, you, you heard from the Warhammer IP. Do you reach out to them? Do they reach out to you? How does that conversation actually happen? So in this case, it wasn't so difficult because uh, Games Workshop has the... Um, uh, a licensing team uh, that they've they've set up like long ago. They've they've been doing licensed video games for many years, and they tend to go to a lot of the conferences, like games conferences and licensing conferences uh, around the the world, but especially in, in Europe and 
especially in the UK. So, so yeah, we just met them at the, one of these conferences. We actually met them when we were developing Drakenlords to see if we could, and, and we pitch like using one of their IPs, but, uh, but it didn't fly at that time. But then after we had released the first car game and we had proven that, you know, we could make a game of, uh, in that genre of decent quality, then that gave them, I think, more confidence. Um, to to partner with us to do another car game. I want to think back to something you said a little earlier, right? With you and your co-founder Isabella, you guys were uh, you guys make all these games, and I'm just curious, like, two of you sit down and actually play these card games, or you guys pick up other competitor games, or not competitor games, but other similar games like Snap and the other ones, and talk about the mechanics that you like and you don't like. Absolutely, yeah, uh, that we we have to do. I mean, I've been playing a lot of Snap as well uh, lately. I mean, it's not, it's again, both for work purposes, because we need to understand every time, like one of these new games, Snap is a great example. They they always innovate. They always bring something new to the table. And I think um, understanding how that works and understanding how that makes you feel as a player, uh, like what's the experience of going through it, um, it's quite important. But even more than that, we love these kind of games. I mean, <laughs> I've used to play a lot of Magic the Gathering and many other uh, physical car games like uh, Vampire, um, Spellhammer, uh, Doom Trooper back in the day, many years ago. So yeah, it's it's obviously a type of game that we enjoy. So it's easy <laughs> to play these new games when they come up. Who, who uh, Who's better between you and Isabella? Who, who gets more of the wins? I think that's, uh, that could land me in trouble. So <laughs> Fair enough. I'm going to ask this next question. If I can't ask this, I'll edit all this out. But you are a part of the Stillfront group. Yes. Uh, a lot of the indie companies we work with dream of being acquired or want to work with a larger company, for better or worse. We don't need to go into that. But uh, has being part of the Stillfront group restricted what you have the ability to do? Does it open up more doors for you? Does it add a level of reporting structure, all the above? All of the above. Uh, I mean, all of, it has... So yeah, just to, to give a bit of uh, background on that. So we joined still from group in the middle of the, of the lockdowns <laughs> during the pandemic. Um, and well, it was a difficult decision, but I think we found a company where we could really fit in. And, and by that, I mean, one thing that really sets uh, still from the part is that it's very decentralized and each studio has a lot of autonomy. So it allowed us to keep doing what we wanted to do, but with uh, with more resources. Like for example, when it comes to scaling the game via marketing, um, rather than doing the, the marketing ourselves, which is is quite a, both an art and a science, and it's it's hard and it's something where um, if you are a small studio, it's very hard to compete uh, with uh, big players. So, well, in part of Steelfront allows us to, to leverage a lot of their expertise and there's a marketing hub that can either take over uh, these activities for us or just give us advice on how to do it. And it's also, it also gives you a credibility. And uh, like when, for example, like coming up with this bigger deal with uh, Games Workshop, uh, obviously having the backing of a large company uh, helps a lot. So I would say generally we've been, we've been quite happy with, with uh, you know joining Silfan. Yeah, that's good to know. I think a lot of companies want to look at that, right? And you hear about different stories about different parent organizations, right? Whether it be in Electronic Arts or Microsoft or something else, and how they handle it. I guess there's positives to both sides, right? If decentralization, you're still able to do whatever you want to do, rather than 
use this tool, use that technology, use this, right? That then you're kind of forced into a square hole. Or a, yeah. yeah, but but you, it sounds like you still have that freedom to do what you want to do with that safety net behind you. Um, I mean, it inevitably adds a bit of uh, extra overhead, extra reporting, extra. I mean, Steelfront is um, it's uh, like a traded uh, company. It's in the stock exchange, so it has some um, like um, additional like accounting becomes more important. You have to <laughs> to do it faster and and better, and and obviously there's some reporting lines. But generally, certainly for us, it hasn't been uh, much of a draw. That's so. great. It's good to hear. And let's talk more about kind of this new IP or the new project you're working on. We don't have to go too much into details about it. But when you start alpha testing, beta testing these games, you take a look at games like Legion to see who your top players are. And are they the ones you want to invite to the alpha? Or do you go about a different way to kind of approach how you want to do that? Yeah, it's a mix. It's a mix. So with uh, obviously with Warforge, we have... Many of the, I would say most of the long-term players of uh, Horus Heresy Legions, they are also very interested in, in playing Warforge as well because they love the AP. They see it's going to be a, a, I would say, certainly when it comes to production values, it's going to be a, a better game than Legions. There are things which are great about Legions and we certainly plan to keep supporting that game because we think it's, in many ways, it's, it's quite unique and, and Warforge will not necessarily replicate a lot of the things that make it unique. And, and we are aiming to create uh, two games which can live in parallel and even have like players playing both and enjoying them for different reasons. Um, so we don't want to completely cannibalize uh, legions uh, when we release Waterforge. But yeah, so we've had a lot of players obviously been very interested in taking part in the alpha and, and the demos that we've done before. Um, but at the same time, we want to make sure that we reach out to other audiences. Uh, we are making a very conscious effort, uh, both the Warhammer fans who may not have played Legions before, uh, but even beyond that, we want to reach uh, players of Magic, of Gwent or Runeterra and show them, hey, this is this is a card game that actually brings a lot of new things to the table. And even if you are not a fan of uh, Warhammer, um, you'll probably become one. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, coming for the card game, not only for the Warhammer brand, uh, because we think you'll enjoy it, it's interesting. I didn't really think about the cannibalization of kind of your player base by offering a new game, right? It's a lot of times you think of like Call of Duty versus the next iteration of Call of Duty, and you want that player base to migrate to the newer game and keep that. But in this case, you probably still want people to play both games. So if you send too many people the invite to the new game that play the old game, it might just completely diminish that player base. It may or may not happen. So what our expectation is that there are players who are super engaged, trying to compete to be the best in the game, and they are playing eight hours a day. Um, obviously, it's very hard to do that on more than one game at a time. But that is not the majority of players. The majority of players play a bit more casually. They may play one hour a day, half an hour, two hours, it depends. But I think the majority of our players play other games as well. It's not only Legion. Some of them play Marvel Snap, or they play... Um, and many other, not only card games, uh, other genres as well. So we don't see why, like these players, like if they are playing four or five games, <laughs> like two of them could be Warforge and Legions because they will offer uh, somewhat different things. When you are building it. Are you, you said multi-platform, do you think about console? Because now I think out loud as well, like, do I want to play a card game on a console? I don't know. But like PC makes sense. So are you looking at console? Are you looking at, 
is it still being built in Unity? I guess there's a whole bunch of different questions there. Yeah, so consoles is an interesting world that we haven't really explored much. Uh, we have checked a couple times uh, about like the idea of launching Legions on the Switch uh, because it does feel like the more natural fit, like playing on the screen, it's a bit like a tablet in that sense, and, and that would run really well. Um, but console does pose like a serious challenge that we are not used to, and it's like the approval times of getting updates. It's even if you just distribute digitally, even leaving aside the, all the challenges of actually like creating discs or, <laughs> or cartridges with your game, but even if you distribute digitally, the, the speed that we are used to on mobile and on PC where we can like compile a new client, uh, a new, an update and have it in players' hands in a day or two, that's not something you can do on console. And so, that's something that we have to be very, very careful of um, because if we release, for example, like we are, we are a very dynamic uh, company. We have like a very dynamic games. We release content all the time, and we sometimes make mistakes or have bugs or, or even a mechanic that is not playing out as we expected. And, and we are used to being able to react very quickly. So console in that sense uh, poses a big challenge. And that's been the main thing that's been keeping us uh, or holding us back. It's funny. I'm sitting here thinking, like, do I really want to use my controller to play a card game? And it didn't even come to me. Like, I, I've heard people complain about the approval times from Microsoft or from Sony to be able to push updates. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, the amount of times that you don't even realize you release an update with a card that's just not balanced properly. And all of a sudden, if you're going to have to wait on console, that, that's going to be a terrible experience for the player itself. I mean, there are there are card games on on console. There's like Wend, there's a uh, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh. There are card games which are doing relatively well. So it's not that I think the obviously the controllers are are something we haven't really figured out. Uh, but I think there's probably a solution for that. But the the more uh, behind the scenes part of getting the updates, that's what uh, for us so far has like really held us back. If you could go back to Andres in 2000, so 23 years ago, and give yourself some advice of things that you've learned over the years, is there something specific you would tell yourself then? Or, yeah. Oh, it's a good one. So first of all, back when, when I finished, so 23 years ago, it's uh, like I was at university, I never really considered gaming uh, as a career prospect. Um, which is strange because the, it's not like the industry in Spain is not huge, but it's not that small. And I had even some friends <laughs> working there, but um, but I was quite keen to become an entrepreneur. And, and you know, gaming was my hobby, but never really thought of that as a as a career path. And and so I went to consulting to to learn a bit more about like business in general. Did my MBA, and I think uh, you know, in a way, I probably came into the industry at the right time where I could bring together not just my my passion about games but also the my learnings about business in general because with free to play you really have to merge the two into the game um, like before you could just develop a great game without having to worry too much too much about the economics it was like there was a publisher who cared about doing the marketing and just trying to sell as many units as possible but now with free to play like the game itself <laughs> um, you have to to worry about how the economy is balanced, how do you manage it long term? Um, the 
even the marketing becomes very integrated with the game development itself. So you do the marketing not just at launch to get as many players to try it as possible, but you do marketing throughout the lifetime whenever you have a big update or whenever you release a new feature. Um, many marketing campaigns are focused on like re-engagement, re like bringing back players who have played and enjoyed your game for a while, but then they disengage at some point. And very often, not because they wanted to stop playing, not because they decided that they no longer want to play the game. Very often, you, like players stop playing simply because um, they start trying a new game or a new Netflix show comes up or, or <laughs> like anything, or they just want to go on holidays and they come back and they kind of, it's uh, for some reason, it stops being part of their daily routine. And so very often, just letting them know that, hey, there's there's a new army that just uh, came into the game and it's enough to, to bring them back and to like uh, re-engage them. So, you know, all the business elements, the marketing, the monetization, the, the, the economy um, are now very integrated with the, the core game. Yeah, it's interesting how, I mean, in this 2000s, right, we're talking Dreamcast and PS2 era, and that's like the first kick of online gaming, I remember, because I had the Dreamcast. And I mean, then we had the rise of mobile, which changed gaming forever, yeah. right? Then we started seeing the free-to-play, like you said, right, where it's less about creating the game. Well, it's less about creating the perfect game and just getting something enjoyable to the market, then fix it once it's launched and for better or worse, that's where we are today. It seems like a pivotal time in history for gaming. Yeah, I think the expectations have been rising <laughs> steadily <laughs> on, on what people expect even on, on mobile games uh, on release. But um, but yeah, there's certainly... it's. I see it much more as a service nowadays. Like uh, It's not enough to just release the best possible game. You have to think, hey, you're going to be providing a service, hopefully for many years. And so you have to have this like long-term plan in place of how you plan to grow and, and keep your game. Well, I think it's a mix between the two, or a balance. You have to understand what you're creating. And I go back to the game Redfall, because I was very excited about Redfall, which didn't want to be a game as a service, right? Like Arcane was known for their for their single player, for their immersive experience, but they were kind of forced to go down a route that just didn't fit. So if you look at a single player game, maybe you do want to create that immersive experience. You, you don't care about the service side of it. It's just know what you're building and don't try and conquer the whole world, I guess, with a single game. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've chosen a genre, which is um, like the, in a way, the path was set for us because obviously yeah. Magic had, well, created the genre and also showed like how to manage it uh, long term. And like one anecdote I remember that surprised me, but uh, initially, but then I, I completely understand when we were releasing our first game, Dragonlords, our first card game, and we were like showing it to, to players like we, we, the pre-release where we like showed it at a trade fair in person and a lot of players were asking us like before it was released what the long-term plan was they wanted to know hey how often are you going to do expansions how certain can i be basically that you will not just like die out in a few months and how are you planning to do like rotations and things like that and i think that comes from the fact that you know, after the success of Magic, uh, for a while, there were lots of card games being launched, physical card games being launched, and lots of players, myself included sometimes, <laughs> um, getting very excited about the new card game. I remember buying a lot of Star Wars like CCG cards, and then there was only like one expansion, and then it uh, they stopped releasing more expansions, and suddenly it's like, okay, I enjoyed this game, I invested a lot of time and money 
in, in playing this game. And suddenly, the moment it stops being supported, then there's no more tournaments and, and people stop playing. And, you know, it, uh, I think a lot of long-term <laughs> or, or old <laughs> card game players have been burned by that. And so they really care about the, how you're planning to run the game in the long term. Yeah, right. If you're going to make an investment, you want to make sure it's a, a fairly sound investment. And it's probably intimidating questions to be asked before you even launch. Like, uh, hoping we're yeah. here forever, and, but uh, it's up to you guys. Does having your sister, Isabella, as a co-founder help you in that case where you could bounce ideas between each other? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, I think in our case in particular, we also have like a very, very different perspective. Um, I'm way more like analytical and, and kind of pragmatic and, and I'm more concerned about the, just the, the mechanics at the very abstract level. Um, and she's more of an artist. Like, I mean, she, she was an artist before doing, uh, like artistic photography. And so she, she brings a very different perspective, much more about, Hey, how does this actually feel when you play it? What impression do you convey? How do we make this look? good and and um, so when it comes to the ui to the ux to the artistic part um but also to the game mechanics i think she she sees them um differently and so we argue a lot <laughs> but i think that's for the better i have one last question because i just want to be conscious of your time today and i think we could talk forever i'm really enjoying this conversation but my quest, last question I'd like to ask from all my guests are, are what current technologies are out there that you see that you're excited about? Yeah, I mean, AI, I think is the answer. It's been the common answer. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Like once you start dipping your toes into it, it's hard not to be both, I think, excited and scared at the same time. <laughs> um, I'm both uh, excited at uh, the things I see it doing. I mean, in our case, we are not using it, for example, to generate art or, or um, text assets for the games because we use like the, the Games Workshop license and it, all the, um, the copyright and the intellectual property issues around AI are still extremely unclear uh, how that works. So, so obviously that's, that's something we are not even exploring at the professional level, but at the personal level, I'm, I'm really looking into this because I think this is going to change our industry and our world you know, it, we are very keen to at least see it coming <laughs> um, as far as we can. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, right? I understand, uh, obviously, your, your game is very big about artwork, right? Because it's a card game um, and you want to make that original. You want to make that yours. But it's curious on where you can use the different parts of AI. I mean, even just analyzing data like we talked about in the beginning of the podcast, like what trends do you see? It would be interesting to see what types of thoughts AI can come up with before we can actually see and. I don't think we're going to be in a quite place yet where we see true things coming out of it, but it'll be an interesting future to come come across. Yeah, I think uh, certainly for gaming, I see some ideas being floated around. I don't know if uh, I mean there's the the obvious, very basic ones of saying, "Hey, let's try to save costs by doing this through AI." That's like obviously very uh, something very obvious, and I think some games uh, are doing that. But I'm way more interested in the things that you simply couldn't do before and you can suddenly do now like for example uh like just having the uh, npcs like uh, controlled by ai so rather than you having to program all the possible interactions if you could bring that level of intelligence into the game suddenly 
I mean, it 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 beca- it opens up possibilities that didn't exist before, and that's that's what I'm much more interested in. Is that what new games or well, we could do that didn't exist? I'm excited about playing a game one day and just talking to an NPC for hours and having just a unique conversation that's generating on the fly. I think it's going to be amazingly uh, immersive as a technology to really help pull you into it, especially when it knows who your character is, it knows what your stats are, it knows like it will know who you are. And it's a cool thought about what the future can be of video games. Yep. No, absolutely. A bit scary as well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's my kid's problem. That's what I like to think. Um, (laughs) But Andres, thank you so much. I think this was a great conversation. As I said, I think we can keep talking, but uh, before you go, is there anything else you'd like to just share with our audience or anything in general? No, I mean, it's uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I think, uh, well, just a reminder that we have like Warforge coming up and it's going to be a great uh, card game based in the Warhammer 40,000 universe and it's already in closed alpha. So uh, we do invite anyone who could be interested uh, to join like the, the waitlist to sign up for the closed alpha and we're distributing keys gradually, hopefully launching the game before the end of the year. Cool. And we'll post all of Andres and Warforge and Hearsay. Horse hearsay, sorry, uh, on our, our player engage website. So uh, we'll have all that information again. Andres, thank you so much for that. And, and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you very much. You did oh, great. Sorry, don't actually leave.